can be seated. Kids, you are dismissed. Good afternoon. Hopefully we're, everybody's fighting through nap time okay as we're here during this time. B, uh, just know this, we want you to be aware that this transition is a, it's a hard, it's a difficult time because transition is always hard and figuring out what the next moves are going to be is always difficult, but just know that uh, we are spending time looking at several new spots. We're, we're going to be moving into a new place, hopefully really soon. So there are a few options that we have on the table, and hopefully as we get more details, we'll be sharing that with the church. But just know that this is something that as a, as a group and as a team, we're, we're dealing with this. We're not, uh, this. Hopefully you're not feeling like that, you know, you're just, hey, what's going on? I'm not sure where we're going or what we're doing. Hey, this church, we're still about discipleship. Right. I don't care what room we're in, what building we're in. Hopefully that's not impacting our ability to love each other well and, and to really want to see more of Jesus in each other. Uh, but we're going to be moving forward, and we're looking at a few spots. So as soon as we see it and we know it, we'll be sharing it. So just to give you a little bit of family business. Uh, this is probably one of the most difficult uh, sermons for me to have to, to give in a lot of ways because I feel like I am completely ill-equipped to give it. I feel like that a lot. But I feel like that especially today. Um, we've been talking about stewarding privilege, and this is one area that, for me, uh, as, a, as a Christian, uh, as, a, as a man, I've never really been challenged to steward privilege uh, in this way that we're going to, to look at today. So let me, let me do this. Let me start with uh, probably one of the main hindrances uh, to me and, and maybe people like me uh, in dealing with privilege the way we're going to describe it. If you're a fan of statistics, if you've ever dealt with statistical analysis in any way, one of the things you know is you have to eliminate outliers, right? In other words, if I wanted to figure out, hey, what was the, what is the average height of men looked like over 100 years, right? If I wanted to be able to map out the trends of what the height of men in America have been over the, what the changes in height has been over, over uh, 100 years, what I'd have to do is I'd have to say, okay, on the, on the bottom level, and some of the stat folks are already excited to see if I mess up this axis thing, but on the bottom level, you would say, okay, this is the time, right? This is how much time has elapsed. And then kind of the vertical would be the, the, the heights, the varying heights. And what you would see is maybe in the, in, in, if you go back to, I don't know, 1917, you would see the average height was five foot this. And then maybe you get to like 1927, and the average height might be a little bit higher. And then 1937, and after a while, all of the plots on the graph, you can start to draw a line to see where the trend is. Oh, it looks like that we've pretty much in a linear way kind of gone uh, and, and grown or grown in height over time. Might see that. One of the things you learn to do when you're doing statistical analysis is to ignore a few of the outliers. So you might, you might see a, a straight line, but you might have one year where the average height was just way higher or way lower than normal. But what you're taught to do is in order to establish a trend, you have to ignore the outlier, right? And so what we typically do is we say, well, in order for me to be able to really take a lot of the information that I have, aggregate the data that I have, and figure out a, a, a gen, gen, general trend, I have to ignore these outliers. We do that. In many ways, we think of policy that way, right? We'll say, well, listen, you can't, you know, if you're going to do a policy, you need to do it for the critical mass. You can't just take into account or you can't be thrown off by outliers. No one writes policy based on outliers, right? And then we do that with our theology. We say, well, my theology is meant to be able to capture the, the, the masses or the majority, right? 
No one ever, ever builds their theology on the outliers, right? You can't do that, right? Because ultimately, theology is meant for the, the majority, right? Those that, you know, in other words, if, if my theology works for me, the privileged person, then it ought to work for everybody. And yet, the gospel doesn't function that way. Yet, Jesus actually shows us something completely different. Jesus actually shows that in God's economy, the kingdom is defined by including outliers. Jesus started with outliers. Jesus started with the ones that might seem, oh, well, that's not the, the mainstream, or that's not the majority culture uh, issue or the majority culture folks. Those are just the outliers. We can't really worry too much about that. Jesus actually starts with that. That's the reason why in Matthew 25 he says, if you haven't treated me like the least of these, if you've not treated the least of these this way, you've treated me that way too. If you haven't cared for the widow, the poor, or the orphan, or if you've mistreated them, you've mistreated me. Why? Because Jesus identifies with the outlier first, not the majority. We talked about this when we were going through the Proverbs 31 leader. And remember when we looked at all of the things that God says he looks for in a leader in Proverbs 31? Uh, and, and one of the things that he lays out is this leader needs to care uh, for the poor and for the least of these, the unprotected. And we were saying it's interesting how typically in, in when political seasons start, the people that are typically brought up is what class? The middle class, right? Everybody's, we've got to be focused on the middle class. We're going to be judged by the way we treat the middle class. And yet God says, as a leader, what I require from my leader is the one who actually cares for the least of these. Actually, we are judged. The kingdom is judged. God's heart. God says that we actually show who he is, not by how we care for the majority, but how we care for the unprotected minority. The outliers actually matter. The outliers are the way that God evaluates our heart. The way we are oriented toward the outlier is the way God evaluates the level to which we are desiring the kingdom. We just sang about wanting the kingdom and wanting to see the kingdom come right now. And yet we're going to see in many ways we are oriented away from that. And so this, this is going to be a challenge. And I think this is going to hit a lot of us. I'm hoping it does. It's been hitting me. All week. But what this passage we're looking at here, Jesus is talking to his disciples. So keep this in mind as you turn to Luke 18. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's been teaching them a ton of thing, uh, tons of things already. And he's getting to this point now where he's getting ready to teach them about prayer. And he's going to teach them about what prayer uh, should look like and the attitude we should have when we pray. All things that we all uh, love. And he's going to use a parable to teach it. And so before we even started, I want you to know this. We, we're all about studying the scripture in context. So the big spiritual uh, point of this passage is when we pray, there's an expectancy with which we can pray, right? When we pray, if we're praying to a just God, we're praying to the just judge, he is just and he will be quick to respond. In other words, uh, prayer, we talked about last week, prayer is not to move God. That's the way God moves you. Well, one of the other things we learn about prayer is prayer is actually God's way of reminding you what he's promised. You see, what you're praying, you're praying based on the promises God's already made. You're asking and you're, you're praising God for the things he said he would do, and you're praising him for the things he's already done, and, and you're praying him for the things that you know that's going to happen because he said he's going to do it. So prayer is God's way of reminding you what he's promised. And so that's the big picture item. Here's the thing. We're not going to dig too much into that right now. 
There are tons of sermons that we could do on that. But there is something that we curiously miss, and maybe a secondary issue within this passage that we need to spend some time in, because it's really easy to overlook. So let's, let's jump into Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, and we should be asking some questions here. I'll just jump right in. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Now, the, again, we, we see the ultimate point, right? The ultimate point, prayer. And we need to be able to trust that God will respond to our prayer and hear our prayers. But there is one very curious thing, easy to overlook in this passage. And ultimately, it's this. It's, it's so common to overlook the widow in this story. Every time I've ever heard this preached on, the, the, we, we, read about the, we read what happens, we read the parable, we skip over anything related to her life, and we just jump right to prayer. God's going to answer it, yay. And we, have, we actually, there's some questions we should be asking here. Number one, you know, those of you who have ever taken a public speaking class, if you've ever been in any, I remember as a kid, I used to take part in these oratorical contests and you'd get in and you'd have to learn these tips on how to do public speaking and how to win a speech contest and how to get, get the crowd on your side and all these things. One of the things you learn quickly in public speaking is this, never use metaphors that your audience can't connect to. Never use uh, object lessons that your audience is unfamiliar with. You don't do that. Matter of fact, in, I remember being in some business meetings where they would do training and they would say, listen, um, and they would usually highlight men because oftentimes this would be the case. And they would say, men, if you are training both men and women and you're using analogies that maybe only the men in the group will get, you need to stop doing that. So they would say things like, hey, know your audience. If you know that there are people in your audience that don't get sports, don't use a lot of sports stories. Don't, don't use whatever it is. Know your audience well. And then use analogies that they can connect with, right? That's the typical rule of public speaking. That's how you draw people in. What's interesting is Jesus actually doesn't do that here. He, he doesn't do that here. He actually, he, got, he kind of violates the, the or, oratory 101, because the object lesson that he uses is a widow. Out of all the types of people to use, why would he use a widow, the story of a widow, to these 12 disciples who are men who will never know what it's like to be a widow? Nor have they ever experienced anything close to being a widow. To being Now, what is a widow in this story? Who, what made up? I mean, who is this woman? We don't know anything about it. It's a parable. So Jesus is using more a fictional story that is more like historic fiction, right? It's, it's a story that maybe didn't happen per se, but there are plenty of stories like it. And so he's, he's painting a picture here. He's giving these men saying, listen, this is a person with which you rarely, if ever, identify. I'm going to use that to get your attention. 
And then this is, this is what we know about uh, widows, because there's a lot of questions. Why, why use this widow? These men don't know anything about what it's like to be a widow. And Jesus is teaching them that in order to love the way God loves, you have to start loving the outliers. You have to start loving the people that are completely outside of your purview, that live in the same world you do, but experience it completely differently. Sometimes even suffering at your hands, whether you realize it or not. To, to be a man back then, and even now in many ways, the plight of unprotected women was treated as a nuisance. You see, this was a very patriarchal society. And so to be a, to be a widow, right, if you were a woman who, whose husband died, if you were a single mom that was by herself raising children, uh, you had no protection for you. In the Near East and in the Middle East, the laws of the land, not just in Israel, but throughout the known world, the laws of the land protected women if they were married because the only person that had real power was the man. So you were connected to the man, and then you got protection. For those of us that love to look, we look in the scriptures and we see these stories of marriage and we over-romanticize it. You do realize that in many, in many ways for women, marriage has often been a survival strategy. It's, it's very few people have had the luxury of kind of this over-romanticized view of marriage that we have now. And in many ways, there were, there were a lot of people who, when they got married, it wasn't even like they got married by choice. Many times these women were, were, were assets. The way that they were able to, to connect with other families was by marrying off a daughter. And so you had very little agency if you were a woman. And then if your husband died, you got none of the inheritance because it would either go to uh, his family and you weren't connected to that at all. And so think about what it meant to be a woman. Anytime you got, if you were getting married, this was a huge risk. The life of a woman back then and in many ways now has always been just one huge risk without any real protection. This is the woman that Jesus uses. He uses this, this woman. This is why the scriptures over and over again say, uh, usually connect the widow, the immigrant, and the poor. Why? Because those are three groups that have never had real protection. And if you're one of these unprotected people groups, if you're a part of that group, then you are a prime target for injustice. It's always easier to, to, to perpetrate injustice against people that have no defense. If, if people don't have a way to protect themselves, they don't have a way to be advocated for, then those are the ones that you can target really easily. And so this, this is the woman, this widow is this person who is an unprotected people group. She's, if you were a widow, you were an object of pity. The way that you were able to subsist was based on just the charitable giving of others. There wasn't much that you were able to do for yourself. You had no man to protect you, to be your point of reference. You were often a victim of injustice. You had no, when we talk about injustice, we, talk, we defined justice last week as this, as this, the three Ps, equal protection, equal provision, and then equal punishment for wrongdoers when you suffer at the hands of another. And the widow had none of those. Widow didn't have equal protection. She didn't have equal provision. And if anybody committed any injustice against her, she had no real punishment that she could seek out for the person. You, you, you stood to lose nothing by treating a woman this way. 
And so these, here's this widow. Society's made no provision for her. She has no sense of inheritance. She has nothing in place. And then she says this to her. She says to the judge, and we'll talk about the judge in a minute. She says, give me justice against my adversary. Now, we don't know the nature of the injustice. We, we don't know for sure what it was. We're not sure kind of what the, the issue was, why she was petitioning the judge in this way. But there were a few things that are certain possibilities. Number one, we know that she could have easily been defrauded. If you decided to, to steal or to uh, exploit a widow, maybe you had her do some work and you decided not to pay her, you could just not pay her. And there was no way for her to, to seek any recourse. Right? The same was a poor and the same can be said for the immigrant. You could just not pay and they would just be defrauded. And that's the reason why in Exodus 22 it says not to uh, mistreat or take advantage of the widow. Right? The law already had something in place. It's interesting. We said this last week that the, the law and God's people always take whatever the conventional wisdom is and just put it on steroids and say, listen, yeah, you guys are protecting these folks, but we're going to protect everybody. And so this, the Exodus makes it clear, you're not allowed to do this, but they still were. But even more so, what was even more common was sexual assault against women. And this is something that for whatever reason, actually for a lot of sad reasons, we rarely talk about in church. We rarely talk about something that has been true for, for centuries, for millennia, the effect that the, the disproportionate rate at which women, especially those in unprotected groups, are assaulted without any real recourse from both society and especially from the church. This was a woman who could easily, quite easily, have been in a situation where she could have been assaulted. How do we know that? How do we know that women, especially widows, were prone to be assaulted in that way? If you've ever read the book of Ruth, and you remember what happened with Ruth, right? Ruth was, uh, she had married a man who had died. And this man was a man of faith. And so she's living with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Even when her mother-in-law tries to convince her to just go away, find another husband, go away. You don't have to do this with me. You don't have to suffer with me. She chooses to, and she says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. This beautiful story. And so she's, she's gleaning, like we talked about last week. She's poor. She's a widow. So the only way she can uh, find a way to make a living for herself is to go to a person with privilege who had land and begin to glean whatever was dropped from the harvesters and she could keep for herself. And, and she ends up coming up to the field of a man named Boaz. And we, we love talking about this beautiful story, this romantic story, and, and, and we miss such a huge piece. Do you remember what Boaz says when he meets her? Do you remember what he has to take into account when he meets her? Listen to what he says, Ruth 2, verses 8 and 9. Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. What is Boaz saying? He's ultimately saying, you can find protection here because I know what awaits you if you go to any other field without my protection. In other words, this is just conventional. We just know that the way things are is that if you are a woman by yourself in another field without any protection, you can likely be assaulted and there will be nothing, no recourse for you. This is what it was like to be a widow. 
I, I, uh, when I was stationed in Iraq, I spent some time in Kuwait. I remember going, get, getting off base. We would go off base, and we would be able to wear like normal, what we call civilian clothes, and we'd go off base. But there was a rule. The women who were stationed with us, they were never allowed to leave by themselves, right? Anytime women were anywhere, they had to have a man with them. Not because the military was, they have their own issues, but they weren't necessarily adopting uh, this, this kind of view of the way women should travel, but they knew that over there where we were, if you're a woman by yourself and you have no protection or covering over you, then people can just come and say, where's your husband? Well, I'm your husband now, and you'll just be taken, and that's it. And so it was our job, knowing that when we were leaving, they were like, hey, listen, if you're going, and if there are women leaving, make sure you take some guys with you, uh, because this is just how they roll out here. This is what it's always been like. Like, this isn't, this isn't new. They're just extending what has been true of humanity for a really long time. And so this, this woman could easily have been dealing with this kind of, of, of assault. She had to worry about being assaulted, and Boaz had to instruct his men. He had to remind his men not to touch her. Just why would he have to remind his men not to touch her? You do realize that this concept of toxic masculinity has actually been around since the beginning of creation. We think it's new now because we have some good phrases and good verbiage to, to put to it. We need to understand that when you live in a world that is dominated by men, whether right or wrong, then if you're a man, guys, I'm talking to myself, it's our job to steward that privilege well. It's actually our job to steward a privilege for the folks who don't have it. And that doesn't, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean take the role as good, strong leader for the subservient, weak woman. That's not what that is at all. There's, there's, a, there's a sense in which when we say that God is making all things new and this kingdom is making all things new, that means that the economy that exists is being turned on its head. That means that what does it mean to use my privilege to empower you so that you can walk in privilege too? This, this is, we're going to see this in a minute, how sad it is in the history of the church on this, uh, but it's something that's been breaking my heart as I look in it. Because men, if we find ourselves with privilege, we're to steward it to protect and provide for those who don't have it, but historically we have not. Look at verses 4 and 5 and, and we get a sense of this judge. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, this is one where it's like it can be really easy to just look at it and go, all right, the, 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 the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? It's like, oh, you know, this woman that's just constantly coming back. The picture that some people can easily create in this, you miss the complete point if that's what you do. Because honestly, What's interesting is the man. Think about this judge for a minute. This judge, normally when you think about an unjust judge, you typically think about a judge who has either been paid off, has some other things that are motivating them, and so they don't dispense justice. This judge is not that. The judge, is, he's not somebody that fears God, so he's not motivated by glorifying God. But he also, it also says he's not a respecter of man. What that means is that he's not easily bought off. He's not easily bribed. So what motivates this guy? Because a lot of times it's one or the other. Like, hey, I want to glorify God, or I can line my pockets by doing this. This man isn't doing that. This man is someone who ultimately just marches to the beat of their own drum. 
They pretty much determined for themselves, this time, yeah, I might dispense justice. This time, I'm just not feeling it right now. There's just capricious nature for, to this person. They're just completely like, eh, maybe I'll do it this time. Maybe I won't. It really doesn't matter. Why? Because I'm not really going to use my privilege. It doesn't exist for them. It just exists for me. If I, if I care about it, I'll do it. If not, I don't. Do you realize, what is this, what is this saying? What would make a man care about unprotected women? What would make this guy do that? Let me ask you this. For the men in the room, what makes you care, if you do care, about unprotected women? Women, period. What is it that should motivate us? I'm going to tell you this. I feel so convicted because with so many of the things that I've just been noticing, obviously in the news right now, we're seeing from, from, from Hollywood tycoons that have been guilty of sexual assault to famous TV dads that have been guilty of sexual assault, why is it that, and when, when, when politicians on both sides of the aisle are guilty of sexual assault and will either uh, slap them on the wrist or even elect them uh, on either side, we will do so and almost overlook it. And then the only time that we get moved is by appealing to our relationship to another woman in our life and go, oh, you know what, I, I have a daughter and that, that ought to really move me. Or I have a mom and that ought to really do that. Or I have a wife and that ought to really do that. But you know what doesn't motivate us? Those are just image bearers, just like I am. Male and female, he made them. In his image, he created them. And yet it takes me to be connected to another woman in order for me to care about the image of God. That's true of my heart. That's not, that's not God's heart. That's not God's heart. It shouldn't take me being pulled into by some relationship that I have. Because here's the thing. It lets you off the hook if you just don't happen to have any relationships with people like that. Whenever people, it's easy to say the, the way to be able to deal with injustice is through relationships. That's a popular phrase. It is true. We need relationships. But let me ask you a question. If you were living in 1930s and 1940s and you didn't happen to have any relationship with any Jewish people, what would have moved you to care about the Holocaust? It doesn't just take relationships for you to care about injustice. It takes you wanting God's heart to care about injustice. The reason why we don't care about injustice is because we still just don't yearn for God's heart. This, this is... This is why it's so uncanny that Jesus, when he's getting ready to teach a really incredible truth about prayer, he uses a woman, an unprotected woman, a group that, that has no real recourse. And these disciples are sitting here, these 12 disciples are having to look at this and go, whoa, I can't even, I don't know how I'm supposed to connect to this. I don't know how I'm supposed to be able to, to feel about this. I, I don't really know any, I don't deal with people like this. And so we, we don't know for sure, but what we know is that this judge is, he has to be worn down in order to dispense justice. He has to just be nagged, if you will, constantly. You know what's sad? What's sad is that for many of us, when we read this, especially men, when we read this, we never see ourselves as the unjust judge in this story. But how many times, if you're honest, have you, have you really just been incredibly dismissive about certain issues because it just doesn't really affect you like that? Uh, I, just, I can't relate to that. I don't know. If, if that's where you are, that's fine, but it doesn't really affect me that way. How easy is it to do that? You realize that what, what privilege gives you, privilege gives you the ability to just ignore the things that are hurting others. It just makes it super easy to do. Well, okay, find some other people that care about that, and I'm for you. 
doing that. But don't ask me to actually have to, to care about those things. See, that's, that's, what's, that's what's sad. Because the, the, the reason why this man is unjust is because he refuses to uphold his promise to protect those that are unprotected. So all of us here, if we have a heart posture that refuses to care about the unprotected, how are we any different than the unjust judge? How are we any different from this judge that has no real desire to glorify God, nor are they really being bought off? They just, that's, they, they, they honestly beat to this, the God on the throne of their heart is themselves. That's who this judge is. But his job is to make right what is broken. And this guy is no different than a lot of folks who have power. And in this country, still, men have a lot more of the power. So what does that mean? Well, if, if, if we're not redeemed and this thing isn't redeemed, then what happens is you do what anybody does with, with power. You abuse it. You exploit it. You use it to your personal, uh, whatever, however it can actually benefit you, you use it. That's what we're seeing in the news right now. Read the stories of any of these women who have been assaulted by these men, and constantly what you see is them leveraging their power to get whatever it is that they want from them. And listen, this isn't just in Hollywood. This happens in boardrooms. This happens in neighborhoods. This happens in churches. And we say nothing about it. Every time a story comes up, immediately, what is the mindset? Well, what did they do? Well, what, what, you know, were they doing enough to make sure that didn't happen? Is that the way you talk about somebody you're supposed to be protecting? Well, you know, I, I, I wonder what they were wearing because, you know, them being assaulted boils down to their sartorial decisions. That's, that's what we do. That's how we... This is what toxic masculinity does to even men who claim to love Jesus. This is who we are right now. And so this, this, this judge is no different from us. And so one of, how does that look? Because ultimately within the church, and this is where I really want to hit, in the church, those of us, if you've been in church for any period of time, you have, I mean, just think to yourself, have you seen experience, have you experienced uh, both aspects of the image of God exalted equally? Because I'm telling you right now, even in the most well-intended churches, the answer is a resounding no. You know how we do it? This is how we do it. And I've been guilty of it. The way we do it is we, we, we talk about men and women, and then we use really, really colorful words like roles and value. Why, why, why am I saying this? Because ultimately what we do is we're like, listen, um, you, we are different, and there's no question. We are biologically, anatomically different, and there are differences for sure. Praise the Lord for that, and we're supposed to celebrate that. Yet what we do is we say, listen, um, you, here's, here's the roles over here. We've got different roles, but we're definitely equal in value, except the way that we manifest that is going to prove that you're not the same in value. What do I mean? Well, if typically the language that we use when we describe the difference is it's really, it's really subtle and actually it's really not that subtle. It's like, well, if you're, if you're, if you're a woman, then, then you're going to be much more emotional and much more nurturing. 
And when you say emotional and nurturing, that should be a good thing. Like anybody who's nurturing and emotional should be a good thing, but it actually is a pejorative because what that simply means is you're incapable. You're incapable of being logical in the moment. I'm logical. You're not. You see, when we, when we use words, if we, there's a way to talk about this, but usually when we use these words, we use words like roles and, and value, and yet we don't even question whether or not that actually is, is happening the way we say. All we're doing is we're taking really pretty lipstick and painting it on the pig of misogyny and calling it balance. That's not, that's not God's heart. How many times in, in, have we seen, specifically in church environments, where if you are a woman and you are having to be in a meeting, even not even just church, even in business, we've got folks that are lawyers and accountants and uh, folks that are doctors, people in this church right now. How many times have people been in a meeting where it's like, better not be too emotional because what are they going to think of me? Better not actually look like I just don't have my logic together because if I'm too emotional, but if, if, if any of us men get emotional, he's really passionate about that thing. If any of us get emotional in church, look at the righteous indignation. He was anointed that day. But if a woman has that, what, are, what, what do we tell them? There's all kinds of uh, uh, phrases that we come up with to determine that, and then it's easy to dismiss you see, this is why it was easy. What did we say to start this? If your theology doesn't work for the outlier, it doesn't work for God. If, if your policy doesn't work for the outlier, it doesn't work for God. If it's not good news to the outlier, it's not good news. And so in, within, within churches, this becomes, that, that form of misogyny is something that's really common. I remember sitting in a meeting, I was kind of a peon at this particular church, but I was overhearing a decision they were making about hiring a young woman. This young woman happened to be single. And this is the conversation that would come out. Well, she's single and she's pretty, so she likely is going to get married soon. It doesn't make sense to pay her that much. That sounds shocking. It is not it's not an anomaly. This is just the way it works. And so then we say, well, you know, the, again, that's where the role and value thing happens. It's so funny because I was in the military and I was enlisted. And when you're enlisted, you have officers as well. Those are the ones that the red carpet is rolled out for and they've been smart enough to get their degree beforehand, all that good stuff, right? And so if you're enlisted and an officer comes by, you salute because they get certain customs and courtesies, right? It's easy to say, hey, listen, we're all equal in value, but you have different roles, except who sits at the nicer table when we're sitting in the chow hall together? Or who actually gets a better spot to sit in when we're at work? We don't have to make up language. Let's just be honest. Listen, there's differences, and we've chosen to place you there. And this is why it's easy to overlook what they're dealing with. It's easy. If you're the officer and you're uh, actually in a position of privilege, it's easy to overlook the enlisted folks and what they're dealing with. It's really easy to just bypass it because it doesn't really have to affect you. And maybe if they nag you enough, then you'll finally go, okay, we got to do something because we're not going to be able to get anything done if we just let them keep uh, complaining. When all they're doing is advocating and saying, give me justice. Jesus, at the end of this, starts to move us and, and compare, and we'll talk about it in a second. He compares the unjust judge to the just judge. And why does he have to do that? Because ultimately, 
all of us, both men and women, need to ask ourselves the question, do I have the heart of the unjust judge? I'm so thankful that I've actually been redeemed by the just judge, and that's great, and I can long to be uh, connected to the just judge, but ultimately, what am I called to do? I'm called to reflect the just judge. So why is it then, as we, as we, as we talk about this, let me ask you, why is it then that these kind of conversations within the church are almost anathema? You're, you're not allowed to talk about these kinds of differences. You're not allowed to talk about, uh, or you rarely are allowed to talk about some of the issues that happen specifically to women, especially as it relates to women, domestic violence, sexual assault. Why don't, how many sermons have you heard in the church about something like that? Why, why is that? We, we have sermons about every topic that you can imagine, especially if it's a political issue, we have sermons about everything, and yet this is one thing that's just, oh, we don't, we, don't, we don't talk about. Do you realize that for young girls growing up, you know advertising works, right? Advertising works for a reason. It's a billion-dollar industry. Why? Because when you see something, there's coding that happens. Oh, those kinds of issues I don't talk about. Oh, those kinds of issues I have to find some secret squirrel place to be able to talk about because that won't be addressed here. The most, if you're a woman, that you'll get, based on the people that I've been able to know, the most that you'll get in the church is making sure that your clothing doesn't look inappropriate. You get that conversation. But when there's a situation where something happens that has been horrible, horrific, tragic to you, especially if it's happened at the hands of someone else in the church, churches handle this miserably. Violence against women was named as a significant public health issue by the World Health Organization in 2013. It reported that roughly four out of ten women have actually been physically or sexually assaulted. That means out of every ten women we meet today, four of them likely have had something like that happen. When is the last time we've actually unpacked that and learned how do we massage the gospel and care for and provide protection for and get, create a safe environment where people can talk about that? Why, why is that something we don't talk about? Let me prove it. We don't talk about it because there was a study that was done uh, of Protestant pastors. 74% misjudge how prevalent sexual and domestic violence was in their own congregation. Two out of three pastors reported delivering a sermon once a year or less on the issue. Although 72% of pastors speak out on the issue because they believe sexual and domestic violence is a problem in their local communities, only 25% see it as a problem in their own congregation. Okay? Keep that in mind. The conversation doesn't happen. This is where it's going to get really tough. The conversation doesn't happen. Because ultimately, those who are in positions of power, primarily men, are, are not affected by that problem. So how would they ever begin to talk about those issues or even care about those issues? They're not affected. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't hit them directly. They don't have uh, some of the history, the, the, the painful history, the shameful history that comes along with that. They, they don't have to deal with being in a room and recounting a story of something that has been horrific. They don't have to sit in a room full of people and do that. So it doesn't affect them. Also, some of the leadership either A, is ignorant of it or quite possibly complicit with it. And what accountability is there for that? There have been cases, really, really, really famous cases, where, where there has been 
horrific abuses that have occurred and the lax approach that churches take to it is sickening. There are women in our churches saying, please give me justice from my adversary. And what the church so regularly has done is just said, I'm, I'm just not with it right now. I, I can't be bothered by this right now. This is going to affect the performance that we have on Sunday. This is going to affect numbers if we actually talk about it and repent of it publicly. We can't do that. Why? Because we don't really believe that they're equal in value. Let's stop lying. We don't. And this is something that here at this church, we need to really think really heavily about what that's going to look like here. Let me tell you this. The reason why it's so difficult, the reason why it's so difficult to deal with when we see the Hollywood abuses, we've seen the abuses in the Catholic church, we've seen the abuses in the, in the Protestant churches. What do we see in common? What we see in common is leadership structures that have leaders in place that don't reflect the people who are being hurt. So here's the deal. Men, all of us, I guarantee you, each one of us has functioned in and been a product of toxic masculinity. Men, in your marriages, I guarantee you that there are very much huge manifestations of toxic masculinity right now. There's no question about it. This isn't, we're not talking about women right now. We can talk about y'all later. But right now we're talking about those that have the privilege by and large in this country. There's toxic masculinity that runs rampant and we just call it being a man. Well, I'm being, a, I'm being a man, you know, I'm a man, you're a woman. When you understand how I'm wired, then you'll get it. Wiring is the ultimate way to avoid discipleship, y'all. This is just how I'm wired. Well, God is rewiring you. Why are you fighting him? And so when I think about this, this is what's interesting to me. I think about my own mother who has been, had been in church her entire life. My mom was the good girl in every sense of the word. And she was uh, following all the rules of this church that she had grown up in. And she uh, had dealt with, you know, she tried to do everything right, was in the choir and, you know, did all these wonderful things and sang and, and, and taught and, and did all this stuff. Wanted to be married right out of high school. Did. She got married at 19 years old. 20 years old, she had me. My mom suffered for 12 years through both sexual abuse and physical abuse. My mom had so much damage before she died that a doctor asked her if she had been in a car accident. Now, this, this, this story is not just about me, y'all. This is, the, the, the truth of the matter is that my mom was in a church, one of the largest churches in Detroit, and whenever she would try to bring these issues to the leadership of all men, what do you think she heard? Submit, just keep praying. We know that he's, he's, he's a Christian, so we know that that stuff can be worked through eventually. Just hold on. Some of the reasons that my mom died were because of some of the damages to her body over that period of time. And I firmly believe that if there were other people in the room making decisions that could actually reflect where my mom was, she might be alive today. You see, if the church is going to be renewed, if the church is going to be changed, if the church is going to look like the image of God, both male and female, then we need both people in the room. 
Do you realize that if, if, if this isn't the case, there are so many people that have been painfully hurt, painfully exploited, and then completely shamed by the church? There are people right now that won't step foot into church anymore because they know people like them were never protected. And this is something that we should feel so convicted about because if you've been in church for any period of time, you likely have either just, we, we all at different times have been like, oh, okay, this is church. This is what we do. And people are hurt. I remember church, uh, people at the church that I had grown up in, there would be horrific things that would happen. And the church that I went to, really big, lots of money, a lot of famous people that went there, they would just relocate the women. They would just pay and move them to another city. Just not, not thinking about anything. Just, hey, we don't need to hear this anymore. We don't need to be bothered with this. Because, again, when you're in a position of privilege, the ones who don't have privilege, they're a nuisance. And you just need to quiet them. It's like a gnat. You just need to swat it away. Yet they're still saying, give me justice against my adversary. And we're saying we don't have time for it. This is why when you think about any... Uh, imagine, imagine it this way. Imagine it like... Um, a sushi bar, okay? You know, I got to bring it to food at some point. Imagine like a sushi bar. You go to a sushi bar, and one of the things that's so true within sushi bars is you, they, they have the, the chef comes in, and he's got lots of different cuts of fish, lots of different flavors that are going to be there. It's been cooked and, and marinating in different flavors, and they want you to be able to taste each one, and they want you to be aware of all the flavors that are in each slice. So what do they put on the plate? They put this stuff called gari, this, this ginger that's there, right? This is this ginger that's been sitting in kind of a sugar and vinegar mixture, and it's just been marinating in that. Why do they put that on the plate? It's to cleanse your palate. Why? Because if you take a bite of this over here, you take a bite of it, and that's great. That might be some shell food, and that shell food, is the flavor is still in your mouth, and you can taste it. But you're getting ready to take a piece of that raw salmon over there, and you don't want the shell food to actually mix in. So you take the, the, the palate cleanser. You take the gari, and it cleanses the palate. So now you can appreciate all of the flavors of the next thing. You do. Why am I saying this? Because ultimately... If you have been eating, chewing on the, the flavors of misogyny and male supremacy, then the only way to cleanse your palate is the kind of diversity that's rooted in the gospel. You see, if you're rooted in any kind of, same thing goes with race, same thing goes with class. If you've been, if you've been swimming in the waters of male supremacy, then you have the privilege of denying that you're wet. And so what, you, what we need is we need other people around us to say, hey, you're, you're wet again. Hey, watch out for that. No, that's it. Hey, no, you, what you're getting ready to say right now is going to come off like this to them, and they're going to clam up, and they're not going to share this. Hey, they're going to actually feel more violated by you if you do this. If you're, if you're a woman and you've dealt with any number of horrible things like that, how comfortable would you be going into a room of five or six men to just be able to share all your stuff? No one would, for a lot of reasons. And yet, that's the structure we have in place. That's the toxic structure that we have in place. By and large, we have not answered that call for those that say, give me justice against my adversary. And yet Jesus moves us to that. This is why Paul mentions people like Priscilla with her husband Aquila discipling men. Whoa. 
This is why uh, Jesus, uh, we see examples of Paul writing to people like Lydia and Phoebe who are leading some of these house churches. Whoa. This is why Paul mentions a woman named Junia who happened to be uh, referred to as one of the apostles. Shock and amaze you. Whoa. Why? Because ultimately what God is doing God is, he's undoing the curse that began at the fall, this power struggle that we're always in. There's a power struggle that says, I want to exalt myself above you. If I can do it through class, I'll do it. If I can do it through race, I'll do it. If I can do it through gender, I'll do it. And guess what God is doing? He's saying, anywhere where my kingdom is, that's being undone. That's being undone. So that the question we can ask ourselves is, as a church, if people are saying, if there's women in our church saying, please give me justice against my adversary, I'm going to tell you right now, there's, it's so easy for me to overlook. If I don't have other people who know that, who understand that, to say, here's what you're going to need to understand, or don't talk, let me talk to them. This is the only way we can lead a group of people in a church like this. This is the only way we can lead and love each other well in a community like this. Jesus shares this story which should make us ask ourselves, am I unrighteous? Am I an unrighteous judge? Do I incline my ear to those who are unprotected? Am I swimming in the waters of supremacy and misogyny and have no one to remind me that I'm wet? I feel so overwhelmed because there's like 17 million things I would love to be able to say right now. You know what all this proves? This proves that even for me, I'm so convicted that, it, that ultimately there's maybe three or four times I can remember ever preaching on issues like this. Why? This is not anything that makes me happy. Why does this have to be a special thing? This is uh, uh, both Sexual and Domestic Abuse Awareness Month. This is something that we should have been talking about from Jump Street. This is, we should be a community where people feel comfortable to be able to come in and say, I've got this pain. I've got this suffering. I would love for women in our church now to never, to never be where my mother was. And the only way we do that is to have this kind of loving, mutually loving community that says, I value you, not because you're a man or because you're a woman, but because you are an image bearer and you deserve dignity, you deserve humanity, you deserve love, you deserve protection, you deserve provision. This should be our motivation, not uh, 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 antiquated or artificial roles and values that we've created that really don't indeed give dignity to anyone. This is, this is the heart that you see throughout the gospel. And so Jesus brings this very story up. Why? Because at the end of the day, yes, we get to pray and we can trust that God is going to meet us. This is what he says at the very end. He's saying, listen, if God, if this unjust judge who doesn't have any real motivation for him right now, if he can be moved to actually dispense justice, how much more? Will your God, who is the God of all justice, respond right away? Here's the truth of the matter. Women that are here, I don't, know any, I don't know your stories, all of you. I don't know everything that's ever happened. But I know that it can be really, there are plenty of times where the church has done things. I know for a fact that the church has done things that can hurt you, that can make you feel unsafe, that can make you feel like I need to keep an exoskeleton on when I come to church because this is not a place that can be safe. And I can tell you that at least the folks that I've talked to that are part of the leadership in this church, one of the things that, that is a commitment is we're not going to do this perfectly. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. 
But my prayer is that when we ever fall in this, if we fail to recognize, if we fail to do this, let this be a place where we can talk about this. Let this be a place where we can actually repent to each other in this. The only way we're going to be the church that looks like the kingdom that's coming is a church that knows how to mourn this well. This is what Jesus calls us to. So we can be confident, even in all the ways that you have been hurt, that there is a God, there is a judge who absolutely is bringing justice. He absolutely is not leaving. We don't have to stay in a place where we're just depressed and sad and despondent without any hope. But here's the thing I'm leaving, and I don't, sadly, I'm not going to be able to leave you with a great, good, bubbly feeling today because ultimately, as long as these kind of things still happen, you shouldn't feel bubbly about it. We need to be holding it. We should be lamenting it and then have this mournful hope that says, Jesus, we need more of you to change us. We need more of you to remake us because this is the only way we're going to look like you. This is the gospel. This is what the gospel should be doing to us. Should be moving us in a place where we're so uncomfortable and we're so broken up by the ways in which we still don't reflect his heart. And then we're moved to repent. We're moved to make real changes. We're moved to have real conversations. This is the only way because ultimately we are called to reflect the judge that does care about this stuff. We're called to reflect the judge that cares about both of his images, his images being exalted equally, without distinction, while there's incredible differences, without distinction in true value. That's what I'm leaving you with. May God make us a people that longs for his heart. May God make us a people that is not rooted in ourselves. May God make us a people that does not just overlook the suffering of those that are the outliers. May God make us a people that says, Lord, if this is not good news to the outliers in our church, then shut our church down because we're not a church. Let's pray. Father, I'm I'm thinking about just so many of just the, the people that I know who have been harmed and damaged and suffered horrible injuries at the hands of the church. Lord, I'm thinking of the people that have suffered horrible injuries even within society. I'm thinking about horrific policies that have been written by people that people in the church have elected. And yet, Lord, we we don't seem to feel any sense of grief or pain. All we can do is shame the victims. And yet, God, this is not what you call us to do. You you tell us to to look at those that are the least of these, the widow, the orphan, the poor, those that are unprotected. God, will you give us a yearning to have your heart for the least of these? Lord, give us a yearning to not not just lament, but be about repairing the damage that's done. God, let us be a people that mourns as if we have blood on our hands. And let us find peace in the blood that you shed that empowers us to be ministers of reconciliation. May this happen to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the table, the the number one word that comes, uh, that I always notice within communion is this word common. And y'all, this is one of those times where even as a family, we need to be thinking about, do we truly have communion with each other as men and women? Do we see each other? While there are differences, do we see each other as truly having the same value? Because if we don't, 
I'm just going to caution you to just sit and evaluate your own heart first. Because frankly, there are ways in which if we are not looking at image bearers the way God does, we're actually in sin. And there are ways that we probably have been walking in that sin for a very long time. And so this is the time when Paul tells us to evaluate and examine our hearts. You realize that in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, that is talking about make sure not just your own personal sin stuff, but ensure that you have good standing with your brother or your sister in Christ. So if there are ways that we have been guilty of toxic masculinity, this is the time to repent. If there are ways that even if, if you're a woman and you have just con- maybe bought into that in a form of Stockholm syndrome, if you will, and perpetrated the same types of logic and language that other mis- misogynistic folks have, have spewed, st- spend time evaluating that because there are people that have been hurt as well. Let this be a time that we say, Lord, I, I want to spend some time really examining my heart to make sure, do I see image bearers the way you do? Then we come and partake of this. Listen, when we take communion, this isn't just a, a time of, hey, we're all here and we all have the same jersey on, so let's go get the Gatorade together. That's not what this is. This is saying we all realize just how far away on our own we are from God. We all realize how far away we are from viewing each other the way God does. And without him changing us, without him actually doing real heart surgery on us and giving us a new heart and giving us a new mind, we have no hope here. We have no chance of really finding true repairing of damaged relationships. We have no chance of repairing a damaged relationship with God. And so this is what's true. If this is true for you, if this is really where you root your greatest hope, this table truly is for you. This isn't for the people who feel like we've got it together. If you are able to see how you don't have it together and you realize that the only hope is Jesus, this table is for you. It's not complicated. If you're not, if this is just not where you are, you're just like, you know what? I don't see all of that. Or the way I've chosen to look at manhood and the way I've chosen to treat uh, women and sisters in Christ, I don't see a problem here. And I don't see this as uh, something that even God is really bearing on. Or maybe I just don't even know if, if this is even true about this God person you're talking about. Then ultimately, God does not want you to just come and play. In many ways, to come in that way is to come the way the unjust judge did. All right, you nagged me enough. I'm in church. I might as well do it. But that's not what he wants. God wants to meet you exactly where you are. He wants to take your heart exactly as it is, and he promises to change it. He brings us to a point of acknowledging our sin, asking forgiveness, and he takes us through this journey of repentance. So our prayer every Sunday is that this would be a time where if you're not there, this can be your first time partaking of communion with a common family of God, image bearers of God. As our volunteers come, we want to remind you that we do communion by the process of intinction. And so that means you'll come down the middle aisle and take a piece of gluten-free bread. You'll dip it in either wine or juice as you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover bread. He gave thanks for the Passover meal, took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body that's given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same manner, he took the cup he said, this is, my, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, the blood poured out for the remission of sins. This is the blood that actually allows us to see each other as actual image bearers now. If this is true for you, then come 
Let's taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. Let's eat together.